Well, perhaps this is you today um, in your current situation, employment situation, but what is, if you would just think, what's the weirdest job you've ever had? Not worst job, but the weirdest job you've ever had. Maybe it's part-time, maybe it's just for a season. But what's the weirdest job that you have ever had in your life? The weirdest job you've ever had? Just think about that. I'm going to share quickly the weirdest job I've ever had, and that was, I was a patient model. So when I was working on my PhD, I was... Uh, at school, and I saw this listing that the local med school was hiring patient models. And what a patient model is, is um, you get a script and you learn the various symptoms that you have, and you actually work with first year, second year medical school students, and they get to practice their bedside manners and get to practice some of the stuff they're learning. And so we would get various situations, and, and often, you know, I was like that 70 year old man with, you know, who smoked two packs a day and all that, and I would go in. And they would do all the routine tests. But here's the thing. I don't know if there's any doctors or medical school students or dentists here or dental students today. But the question they always ask me, the very first question is this. What brings you in today? What brings you in today? And still to this day, when I go to my dentist or my doctor for my annual physical or to get my teeth cleaned, a dentist or the doctor, hygienist, or somebody will say, so what brings you in today? You know, do you have a toothache? Do you have like some abdominal pain? Do you have a bum knee? Like what brings you in today? And the question they're asking is, why are you here today? And today, I'm going to play the role of a spiritual physician, a spiritual doctor, and ask you this. What brings you here today? Why have you come in, on a Sunday morning at 9, 9.30 to gather, to sing, to worship, and to hear a message? What brings you here today? What is it that brings you here? Is it because your friends are here? Is it because you grew up going to church, and on Sunday mornings, we gather, go to church is it because you say, you know what, it's been a rough week and I need to hear from the Lord. I want to get closer to the Lord. So what brings you in here today? And so what I want to do from Nehemiah chapter 8 is answer that question of why we gather together. And also this thing and the message is titled, Why Expository Preaching? Why is it that you all come for an hour, hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, every Sunday? We hear the word read. We are called to worship. We worship in song. We praise the Lord. And then we hear a message and we have a time of response. Why do we do that? Why expository preaching? So if you have your Bibles, look at Nehemiah chapter 8 and we'll answer those questions. So what brings you here today? Why have you gathered here today? Nehemiah chapter 8. This is in October of 444 BC or 445 BC. Again, the wall has been rebuilt. And if you listened to the message online last week, uh, the purpose was not rebuilding the wall. The purpose was seeing people who've been redeemed and restored living and walking in God's shalom. And so today we're going to look at the spiritual restoration of the people, the spiritual restoration and reformation of the people from Nehemiah chapter 8. In verse 1 it says this, in October of either 444 BC or 445 BC, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled, that's what a church is, an assembly, assembled with a unified purpose. Some translations said as one man. They were united at the square just inside the water gate, which is on the eastern part of Jerusalem. They asked Ezra scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and the women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who, who could understand all the people listened closely to the book of the law. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To his right stood, and I'm going to butcher all these names, 
Matayata, Shema, uh, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Masaya. To his left stood Padiah, Misahet, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of the people. When they saw him open the book, they, rose, they all rose to their feet. Verse 6. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted amen and amen as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 7. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherbiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Hodiah, Masai, Kelida, Azariah, Jozebed, Hanan, and Peliah, then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. So this model that we just looked at has been carried out by the Jews, even in the synagogues, even during exile. And this is the pattern that they followed that Ezra, the priest, he got up and read the law. He read the word of God and the people stood out of respect and reverence for the word of God and for God himself. So he would read the word of God as a call to worship, as a call to align yourself vertically with God. That's what it was done for. And if you notice at Bayou City Fellowship, when we enter, we start with a call to worship. We read a psalm or a selected epistle. We read the scripture, ask you to stand to prepare your hearts. And then what did he do after that? He says in verse um, uh, six, then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And, and I forgot to mention this. So Ezra read the word, the word of God. He read the law from the early morning, most likely sunrise, six o'clock till noon. So the people stood and listened to the word of God being read for six hours. And again, this is something that uh, uh, was done because it had not been done in a long time because they had been in exile. So they stood and listened. And he says, then Ezra praised the Lord, verse six, the great God and all the people chanted amen and amen as they lifted their hands and they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. We don't know exactly how, but he says, and then Ezra praised the Lord. He led them in public worship, the public praise of God. And the people raised their hand, which was a sign of receiving a blessing from God. The people responded with amen, amen. And then they fell and bowed to the ground with their faces to the ground out of worship and respect for God. That word praise is an interesting word. It occurs 330 times in the Old Testament. And it's the Hebrew word barak, barak. And it means to bless. And the root word for barak means to kneel. It means to kneel because you're gonna bless somebody with something. You give somebody something. The root word for that is to kneel. And it's used of, obviously, us blessing God, but it's also used of God blessing us. In Numbers 624, it says, the Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. When it says the Lord blesses us, again, it's that picture of God giving something valuable to us. And the word, again, is, the root word is to kneel. And the word barak in Hebrew is also the same word used in Arabic, which is also a first name for some people. Yes, it is, right? I mean, I'm... Okay, that's his name. It means to bless. So we start with a scripture reading, and the people stand. And then we have a time of praise in which the people respond with amen, amen. They raise their hands, they bless. They fall to the ground, and they praise. And then in verses 7 and 8, we see Ezra and his assistants, the Levites, teach the word. And not only do they read the word, but they also explain the word. They explain what it means. 
Most likely it involves two things. One is this, is that the people, the Jews in exile have forgotten how to speak Hebrew. They've forgotten their native tongue and now they know Aramaic. And so as Ezra is reading in Hebrew, they're sitting going, I don't even understand what he's talking about. And so what has to happen is a translation from Hebrew to Aramaic. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is this. Not only is this a linguistic translation, but also explain this is what God means by that. That's, this is what God means by what Ezra's talking about. And they're explaining the word of God. So here's point number one in this fancy term, why expository preaching. Expository preaching is a public explaining or exposing of God's word. That's what expository preaching is. If you thought it was something fancy and technical, all it simply means is we take the Bible, God's word, and explain it publicly. We expose it. The root word for expository is expose. We tell you what it means and apply it to your particular life situation. That's what expository preaching is. And that's what goes on here. We see again, a call to worship. The people stand, the scripture's read. They have a time of praise. And then Ezra says, I'm gonna now teach the word and explain what it means and take a language that you may not know, explain it to you in your language that you would understand. And it says here at the very end, helping the people understand each passage. So it's very similar to what we do today. And it's been done for, again, thousands of years by Jews. It's a call to worship, a time of praise, the explaining and teaching of God's word, the scriptures. And then two more aspects is a response from the people, which we're going to look at in verses 9 through 18, a response from the people. And then last thing is a fellowship meal. And I know for some of you right after this, you're going to go and hit up Denny's or hit up somewhere in a time of fellowship. And usually that fellowship meal in the New Testament also included, what we're going to do later today, communion as an act of sharing in God's, uh, uh, the life of God together. So again, it's scripture reading, praise, teaching, explaining God's word and response and a fellowship meal. And if I could explain expository preaching, again, using the dentist analogy, is you look in the mirror and you see your teeth. When you smile, you see your teeth and you, you're able to see those pearly whites but what the dentist does, if you remember on, I think every year I do it, they say, hey, we're going to have you sit with this big lead vest on your chest. And we're going to take x-rays of your teeth and gums. Y'all have done before? And basically what they're doing is they're exposing. They're showing you not just your teeth, but even the deep roots of your teeth. And if you have a gum pain or toothache or something, they say, this is what's going on. And that's what we simply do with God's word is the God, uh, God has revealed himself to us through his word. And we just expose, we open it up to you. Now, here's the three responses, though. So whenever you hear the word, and that's why I want to encourage you with this. I want to encourage you. Um, and this is not for everybody. So if this does not apply to you, just tune me out right now. Uh, many years ago, my wife and I were part of a church, um, a very large church. And we were sitting uh, kind of in the middle back area. And we noticed that there were some couples that as the sermon was bring, being preached, they put their arms around each other. They get popcorn out and start eating popcorn and hot dogs. I'm just kidding, no popcorn and hot dogs. But I, I Tara leaned over and says, man, some people treat like the worship gathering like it's like a movie, you know, like date night, you know? And I'm like, yeah, it is kind of weird. I'm looking around. If you treat the sermon, the message, the preaching as the movie, as the reason why we come, and you treat the worship, the praise, and the call to worship as the previews, so you're like, man, I know the movie starts at 4.30, but I know the first 15, 20 minutes is going to be the preview. So it doesn't matter if we get there at 4.30. Let's get there at 
because I can miss the previews. And this applies both to live and also online folks as well. So right now, if you are listening to this, watching this on YouTube, and you've got another split screen, and you're already like looking at your calendar for the week and working and sending emails, or you're vacuuming and listening to this right now, you're missing the point, y'all. Because it's the praise and worship in which we glorify God collectively in public. It's a call to worship that's the whole package in which our hearts are aligned vertically to God and prepares us not just to hear the word, but also to respond appropriately to the word as well. So if I can encourage you all with that, is don't treat the Sunday morning worship gathering as Broadway or as a movie where you say, you know what, as long as I get there for the message, and I've been in serving in churches in the Bible Belt, and these churches, they start like at 10, and then right for the sermon, a whole crowd of people come in. And I know sometimes there's things that come up, you know, flat tires, kids are cranky, whatever it is. I know it's difficult to get here, but I'm talking to people who say, you know what, I'm just here for the message. Please come for the call to worship. Please come for the praise so that you can draw deeper to God and have your hearts ready to respond to God's word. Amen? Amen. Here's three responses to God's word. Three responses. The first one is this, verse nine. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people all had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Verse 10, and Nehemiah continued, go and celebrate with a feast of rich food and sweet drinks and share the gift of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before God. Don't be dejected and sad for the Lord uh, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here's response number one. Response number one. Understanding and conviction that leads to repentance. And this is based on Nehemiah 9.20. Nehemiah 9.20 says God's spirit is going to be in us. God's spirit's going to be in us. And John 14.26, that the Holy Spirit will be your teacher. This isn't just an academic exercise of you saying, ooh, I understand that. I know what it means but it's much deeper than that. When God reveals to you, you say, you know what? God has opened my eyes. He opened my ears. Now I understand what God means by this. I understand and I grasp the heart of God. He says, when you get to that understanding and to that conviction, when you realize the word of God, because it's from God, is perfect and you're not, he says the first thing, the first response is repentance because here the people are weeping. They realize they says, you know what, and they most likely read Deuteronomy 28, maybe Deuteronomy 31, and Leviticus 23. This is a festival of trumpets or the blowing of the trumpets. They understand the reason why we have just come out of exile, the reason why we don't speak Hebrew anymore, the reason why we've had to rebuild these walls from Deuteronomy 28 is this. We have been unfaithful to God. We have disobeyed God. And out of just a deep sense of conviction, they repent in tears. They're weeping. And at this point, Nehemiah says, man, stop crying. This is the blowing of the trumpets. This is supposed to be a festive day. Remember Deuteronomy 31, we're supposed to blow trumpets, prepare for the day of atonement. Like this is a day of celebration, but the people are repenting. Now here's what repentance means. Repentance means a changing of your mind that leads to a change of direction or a change of behavior. True repentance, different from remorse. True repentance is a changing of mind that leads to a change of direction or change of behavior. Let me try to uh, share a story. Let's say uh, next weekend you're like, man, um, 
It's been a long week at work, and so I'm going to get away for a couple days to Galveston. So you say, I'm going to Galveston. So you hop on I-45, and you jump on I-45, heading to Galveston for a little getaway. Soon you're passing spring. Soon you're passing ExxonMobil on your left. Soon you're passing the woodlands. Soon you're passing and you're entering into Conroe, and you're saying, man, this is weird. I'm seeing more and more pine trees and less and less of the ocean. And so eventually you pull over and you stop at Sam Houston State University and you see a co-ed in an SHU sweatshirt and you say, excuse me, excuse me, I'm trying to get to um, Galveston for the weekend. I got a hotel reservation in Galveston. Can you tell me which way to go? Uh, Can you put that slide up, Ben? And they say, oh, it's because you're going the wrong way. You're going on I-45 North. You keep going on this, you're going to end up in Dallas. So they tell you, You should have got onto I-45, right highway, but you're going the wrong direction. You have to go south on I-45. Now, at this point, you have a decision to make. You can say, well, I trust myself, and I think if I keep going on I-45 north, I'll eventually get to Galveston. Or you can say, you know what? I can hear what this person said, change my mind that I'm going to go on I-45 south, and that's going to lead to a change of direction. And the same thing happens with God's word. When you read God's word and you hear God's word, the first response is this. If you are the one in the wrong, if you are the one who's in error, you can say, I can still keep doing what I'm gonna do. I know I'm a married man, but I'm gonna keep flirting with this young lady at work. I know I'm a married woman, but I'm gonna keep doing this. I know what the Bible says about parenting, but I keep doing this. I know what the Bible says about giving, but I'm gonna keep withholding. I know all those things and I'm not gonna change my mind. Or you can say, you know what, if this is what God says, if this is what God declares, this is what God has revealed, this is what the Holy Spirit is convicting me of, opening my eyes to, opening my ears to, I will change my mind, and it's going to lead to a change of behavior. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to start giving this. I'm going to start doing this. So that's what repentance is, a conviction, understanding conviction that leads to repentance. But the second part is this. Look at verse uh, uh, 11. And the Levites too, quieted the people, telling them, hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal to share the gifts of food and to celebrate with great joy because they had heard God's word and understood them. The second response, understanding conviction that leads to joyous obedience. Joyous obedience. They said, you've heard the word. You've heard the word explained in your own language. The spirit has convicted you. He's opened your eyes and opened your ears. You have a deeper understanding of God and his revelation. He says, and now you've repented. You said, you know what? We are gonna turn from our sin because we've changed our mind. And he says, and don't weep. Don't be grieved. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. That's our memory verse for the week. He says, and so he's calling them to obedience. So the second response, when you understand it, it leads to joyous obedience. But not only that, look what happens on the next day, verse 12. Um, He says, uh, 13, on the October 9th, the family leaders of all the people together, the priests and Levites, met with Ezra's scribe to go over the law in greater detail. As they studied the law, they discovered the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in shelters in the festival be held that month. He had said that a proclamation should be made throughout their towns, Jerusalem, telling people to go to the hills to get branches from olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees. They're to use these branches to make shelters in which they would live during the festival as prescribed in the law. This is what's called the festival of booths. They would make these tents 
on their roofs. And some of you two weeks ago were doing that in your own homes, making little tents to stay warm. He says, and this is appropriate, he says they would make these tents to remind them of their wilderness wanderings, to remind them of how fragile their lives were and to remind them how much they depended on God. And if that didn't happen two weeks ago, to show us how much we depend on God. Verse 16, so the people went out and cut branches and used them to build shelters on the roofs of their houses and their courtyards and the courtyards of God's temple or in the squares just inside the water gate and the Ephraim gate. So everyone who returned from captivity lived in these shelters during the festival and they were all filled with what? Great joy. And that's one word that's a continuous theme of Nehemiah, joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. Verse 18, Ezra read from the book of the law of God on each of the seven days of the festival. Then on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly as was required by the law. So what happens? He says they understood God's word. They were convicted by the spirit. They repented to joyful obedience. But this joyful obedience also included a hunger and desire to know more of God's word. He says the next day, October 9th, the family leaders gathered and they said, what, there's more we should be doing? So they said, yes, a festival booth, a festival tents. They built the tents in obedience to God's word. So it leads to even more obedience. And they says at the very end that they read for eight days straight and on the last day had a psalmist on the day of fasting, praying, and mourning. And we've done that here by City Fellowship. And that's my plan every first week in January Going forward, that we'd have a solemn assembly, we would commit our year to the Lord out of a desire to grasp God's heart. So those are the two responses from the text, but there's a third response. Response number three is understanding and conviction that leads to head knowledge. Understanding conviction that leads to head knowledge. And this is not in the text because this is not what God wants. God doesn't want it where you hear a sermon, you take copious notes. You hear a sermon, you listen to it again on your drive into work tomorrow. You listen to it again on podcasts or YouTube, whatever you listen to, and you hear the word of God. Or tomorrow morning you say, man, the sermon yesterday gave me a hunger for more repentance and obedience because of my love for God. And you open God's word and all it does is lead to greater head knowledge. You could be on Bible Jeopardy. Yes, Alex, I'll take Old Testament trigger for 300. And you can wow people with all the scripture you know. But God says it shouldn't be like that, that when you encounter the holy God, it should lead, as you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, to repentance, a changing of your mind. Man, the way I was thinking was way off, was a little bit off, was off. And I changed my mind, and it's going to lead to me changing my behavior, changing my parenting, changing how I treat my employees, changing how I talk to my wife, how I talk to my kids how I serve at church and what I do with my money. It's going to change the way I do those things because I've changed my mind. But he said, it should not be where you walk out these doors today and you email and say, oh, pastor, that sermon is so convicting. Oh, so good, so convicting. I feel the pain. My response is going to be, so what are you going to do different? What are you going to do differently? So it's not enough to have understanding and conviction. As you watch online, as we call you to worship, as we call you to stand out of respect for God's word, as we lead you in praise and your heart is aligned vertically so that you can grab the heart of God, as the word of God is proclaimed and explained publicly and the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and you say, oh, that's off in my life. God's word is perfect. It's the standard. It's the true north. 
and I'm heading east or west or whatever, and I need to change my mind and change my direction. And at least obedience, it should not just be head knowledge. It should not just be head knowledge. Um, have any of you ever had this happen to you? You have to make a really important phone call or you're waiting on a really important phone call or you're waiting on a really important text or there's a text message you have to send. And then as you're waiting on that, all of a sudden says, updates, ready to install. And it starts updating, installing updates. Have y'all had that before? And you look and it tells you exactly how much time is left in the download. So it's taking something from up there and downloading it on your phone. And you count down because you know this phone call is coming. And you can't even use your phone while it's doing that. Nine minutes, eight minutes, seven minutes, six minutes, right? And you're counting down, waiting. Have you ever had that before? Anybody? Is it just me? And your phone is updating. And you can't use your phone while it's updating. And then it tells you that this new update is going to work out bugs and kinks and help make your life easier and better on your phone. And then finally it goes to 30 seconds, and then bang, it's all done uploading, all, your, all the new uh, data and, and programs and all that. But then what does it do? Then it shuts down for like two or three minutes, right, as it's uploading all this stuff. And here's the thing. This is what frustrates me. Have you ever had that critical phone call, that text message? You've been waiting for this update to come in from up there down to your phone. And then once your phone is ready, nothing has changed with your phone. It's not better, it's not smoother, it's not faster. And you're saying, all this information from up there has been downloaded down here and has led to no change. And you know what? Right now, as we're gathered to worship, as we've called you to worship and align your hearts vertically, revelation has come to you from up there down to here. And right now, your boss has probably been trying to call you or text you and you're like, you know what? I'm too busy, I'm uploading information from up there down to here. But then you show up to work tomorrow morning and nothing has changed. All you have is now more information in your head. And the people in your life, the people at your work, your wife, your kids are wondering, you've been sitting in here uploading, getting updates from God, updated revelation from God, and nothing has changed. All it is is put more information in your head, taking up more memory on your phone. What has changed? So the third response is not the response that God desires. It is for us, as we are being updated, as we're being reformed and restored as a congregation, as a body, as a family, when tomorrow morning you get into God's word and that word should reform you and restore you. Let's turn to this verse and then we'll be done here. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, Paul talking to his spiritual son, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired, and that word expired literally means God-breathed. It really should be expired, comes out of the mouth of God. All scripture, 
Genesis to Revelation is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. That's the purpose of the Bible. Again, you notice there, he didn't say it's so that you can win Bible Jeopardy, so you can always have the right answer in community group. He didn't say that. It is to correct, to reform, to restore, to transform your life. And then with that, look at first, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4.1. That's why Paul says this to Timothy and to all pastors and preachers. I solemnly charge you, urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. He says that's what the pastor, the preacher is called to do. Acts 6 says that's what we give our time to preaching and to prayer. And that word to preach is the Greek word keruso, K-E-R-U-S-S-O. It means to herald, the one who comes to bring news, to announce something. He says, that's what we do. And so here's the thing. If you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, and if you want to become more like Jesus Christ, if you want to see Christ-likeness in your marriage, your singleness, in your parenting, as an employee, as a boss, if you want to become more like Jesus Christ and be transformed and reformed. Here's the big idea for today. Restoration and reformation. You got to hear, you repent, and then joyfully obey. Or you can say read, if you, if you say in my own time of study. I read God's word. I read God's perfect inspired word and it examines my own imperfect life and it says to me, repent. I change my mind and it leads to a change of direction, a change of behavior. And then with that comes joyful obedience, spirit empowered obedience. And that's what God uses to transform us and make us more like Jesus Christ. So again, you hear God's word you repent, and then you have joyous obedience. But again, the first step before that is, do you want a deeper relationship with God? Do you want to know God more? Do you want to be formed and reformed into the image of Jesus Christ? And my commitment to you as your pastor is that every Sunday you gather here collectively, like God's people have been doing for thousands of years. You'll get a call to worship to say, align your hearts to God. You get a time of praise to say, you know what, we're in God's presence and we're gonna worship and bless him. We're gonna, we're gonna kneel and we're gonna bless God. We're gonna give him something. We're gonna give him praise so that our hearts are ready to hear God's word, to hear what God has revealed to us. And when we hear it, when God gives us understanding and conviction through the spirit, I repent. And then you say, but now I want to joyfully obey. I want to obey you and be transformed moment by moment, Sunday to Sunday, Monday to Monday, Monday through Friday. I want to be transformed moment by moment into the likeness of Jesus Christ because he's the one I love. You become like the one you behold. I behold Jesus and I want to become like him. Well, uh, February, uh, this is the last Sunday in February. We wrap up Black History Month and 
I don't know if you've heard of this character before, this historical figure, Wentworth Cheswell. And all of us know probably the name Paul Revere. Paul Revere was one of the midnight riders who rode west to announce that the British invasion was coming, to warn the colonial troops, to warn John Hancock and others that the British were coming. But story, uh, history does not record that there were others actually on that midnight ride as well. There was a young 16-year-old girl that also rode as well. And Wentworth Cheswell was another one of those midnight riders. And he rode north up into New Hampshire to warn the colonial army that the British were coming. Uh, history also records that Wentworth Cheswell was the first, first let me get this right, uh, black publicly elected official. He was elected as constable for Newmarket, New Hampshire back in 1768. So history records that he was the first ever publicly elected black man, a black person in the history of America. But he was one of the riders in the Midnight Ride, and he rode north into New Hampshire to warn the colonial army that the British were coming. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Let's play that today. Let's play that today. Imagine if you are in bed around midnight, one o'clock, comfortably in bed. It's not two weeks ago, a week and a half ago. You're in your warm, cozy bed. And you're part of the colonial army. And you've got your weapons maybe under your bed or in a closet. And you hear this voice. The British are coming. The British are coming. The British are coming. Wake up. The British are coming. Now you have a choice at this point. You can snuggle up with your covers even more and ignore what you're hearing. You can ignore that. Or as a good soldier in the colonial army, take that as a clarion call to take up arms and to be ready. And that's what a preacher is. The word preacher, preach, caruso, is that man or woman on horseback that is riding through these towns and villages, announcing news, proclaiming, making a proclamation. And not just for information. Not just so you say, oh, that's nice, the British are coming. Hmm. Well, tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. when I wake up, I'll make sure to do something about it. No, he says, it is information, news that is given out of response, calling for a response. And that's what God is doing every day. You and I are soldiers in God's army. God has conscripted us. He's drafted us. He's brought us into his family, but also his army. The church, the local ship is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. And I'm here today, and we'll be here every Sunday, proclaiming to you there's a spiritual war at hand and calling for God's army to put on the full armor of God, to put on Jesus Christ. And you can say, I just want to stay comfortable. I really don't want to be a part of this. But God is saying, it's coming. It's here. It's here. Put on the full armor. So again, we hear God's word. We hear God's word. We read God's word. We study God's word. The herald, the preacher says, this is what God says. He explains it. The spirit illumines it. He convicts you. And the response again is, hear it. Repent, and it should lead to joyful obedience. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful that today is Communion Sunday, and you've given us a, a great way to respond this morning to what um, you have just convicted us of and helped us to understand that the worship gathering is not just a sermon. This isn't a movie. This isn't a show. But God is a way for your people for now thousands of years to gather to align ourselves with you, to recalibrate our lives to you, to declare that your kingdom is greater than any other kingdom. 
to submit ourselves anew to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So God, now as we prepare for communion, as we prepare to just recommit ourselves to you, God, will your spirit, your Holy Spirit that has been filling us, teaching us, opening your word to us, revealing yourself to us, would that same Holy Spirit now reveal to us areas where we have sinned, where we've fallen short, where we have called something a mistake rather than sin, where we've called something an indiscretion rather than sin, that your spirit would convict our hearts now so that we can change our minds. We can confess and say, God, this, this is sin. This is wrong. And based solely on the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I ask you now to forgive me. God, if there's someone here today that's yet to put their faith in Christ, perhaps today's the day saying, I want to be part of this family. I want to be part of this kingdom. I want to be part of this army. But today be the day they place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for that. So God, now prepare our hearts again. Let's prepare to renew our commitment, our fellowship, our friendship with you through the body and blood, the public remembering, the public declaration that we're followers of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Hey, if you need uh, the cup and the juice, just raise your hand. We can get that too. If you didn't pick one up on your way in, just raise your hand up high, please. And would you just take time now to ask God to search your hearts? And we'll take communion together.